Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We are continuing tonight our series through the book of Exodus. And what we've said all semester is that Exodus is the true story that helps us make sense out of our lives. And, and that's important because we need that. Life is confusing. And we need something to help us make sense out of life. James Wood, who's a Harvard philosophy professor, he, he wrote an article in the New Yorker a number of years ago called, Is That All There Is? And what you need to know about Wood is that he is a, a pretty staunch, committed atheist. But in this particular article, he is trying to make sense of a world that has no meaning. Because he's sort of carrying his worldview out to its logical conclusion, and he's sort of disturbed by it. And in the article, he, he quotes a friend of his who's another Harvard professor uh, who also is a convinced atheist who says that she wakes up in the middle of the night haunted by this reality, and this is how she sums it up. She says, How can it be that this world is the result of an accidental Big Bang? How could there be no design, no metaphysical purpose? Can it be that every life, beginning with my own, my husband's, my child's, and spreading outward, is cosmically irrelevant? Is this all that there is? What, what James Wood and his friend are, are tapping into is, th- is this question that's sort of col- coursing through the heart of our culture right now, which is, is this it? Is there meaning behind the universe, or is my life just a, like a random mix of boredom and pleasure and pain? Or is there actually meaning behind the universe? This is a major question for us right now. This is why, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, the... the on the nonfiction list, there are all these sorts of books that are about spiritual seeking. There, there's a book uh, by the Dalai Lama that's really popular right now about finding joy. There's a book um, about finding spiritual tools for handling rejection. There's a book by a self-described Mexican healer about finding spiritual freedom. It's everywhere. We are, we are wrestling with, is this it? Or is there meaning behind the universe? Now, some of you are here at RUF tonight because you have be- become convinced that the answer to that question Um, is yes, there is meaning behind the universe, and that's why you're here. And some of you are here tonight because you're at least curious that maybe the answer possibly could be yes. And here in this particular passage in Exodus chapter 3, we get a window into an encounter with God that answers that question. Is this all there is? So let's look together at Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read the whole thing of Exodus chapter 3 and then just a couple of verses out of chapter 4. This is God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of fire, a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said to him, Here I am. 
And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh." that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God continued. He said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then beginning of chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And then God and Moses continue to talk and God tells Moses about all these signs that he's going to let Moses do so that he can sort of prove his validity to the Hebrew people. And then Moses, we'll pick it up again in verse 10. Moses says this, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. And I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. 
But Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Since this is God's word and not my own, let's pray and ask for his help as we look at it this evening. Father in heaven, we do need your help. I need your help. I don't just pray because it's the thing I'm supposed to do before I preach. I pray because, because we need you, Holy Spirit, to come and be at work in our midst. Would you be our teacher? Would you do what only you can do and bring the dead to life, we ask. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading this, but Moses was not looking for God. He was out minding his own business. Uh, He was tending someone else's flock. He was keeping Jethro's sheep. And something seems to catch his eye. It stops him in his tracks. And it draws him in. And he goes out of his way to investigate this fire. But it's not just any fire. Because this isn't, just a, this isn't a fire that's actually burning. See, all fire needs fuel. But this fire doesn't need fuel. It's on the bush, but it's not consuming the bush. And so there's this sort of strange beauty of this fire that's, that's drawing him in. And so Moses meets God, and the, the, the way that God chooses to reveal himself to Moses is through fire. Now that's pretty significant. Because that is actually, if you trace the theme of fire throughout the whole Bible, that is actually the way that God, the primary way that God, when he chooses to make himself visible, is through fire. Way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham meets God, he meets God, and the form that God takes is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Later on in the book of Exodus, as God is leading his people out uh, of Egypt in the nighttime, Uh, He leads them and guides them and protects them through a pillar of fire. Again, in the book of Exodus, when God descends onto Mount Sinai to give the law, to give the Ten Commandments to Moses, what happens? The mountain is engulfed in flames and in smoke. Fire is significant. It it, it shows up in the New Testament. um, In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the, the disciples are sitting around waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to move, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes into the room. In what form? tongues of fire. So that God is revealing himself here in fire is incredibly significant. So we're going to camp out on this idea of God being fire tonight. Uh, In particular, I want us to look at two things from this passage, that God is a fire that empties us and God is a fire that fills us. He's a fire that empties us and he's a fire that fills us. So first he's a fire that empties us. Before we moved to New York City, Um, We lived in Birmingham, Alabama, and we had this wonderful backyard behind our house. And attached to the back of our house, we had this wooden deck. And attached to that deck was a fire pit, and it was glorious. Um, Because that fire pit was was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was life-giving. Like, we would sit, Megan and I would sit. We'd put the kids to bed. We would build a fire, and we would sit and just drink a glass of wine and talk and just stare at the fire. Because you've ever done that before? Fire is mesmerizing. It's beautiful. It kind of draws you in the way the flames leap and move, and it's wonderful. Um, and so in that sense, it's sort of life-giving. You can cook a steak over it. You can roast a marshmallow. Like, it, it can give life, but it can also take life. Because that very same fire, while it was beautiful and life-giving, if I had accidentally kicked that fire pit over and my deck caught on fire, it could consume the deck. It could consume the house. It could consume my family. It could consume the neighborhood, right? Like, fire is beautiful, and it draws you in, but it's also a threat. It's also dangerous. It's not to be trifled with. And that's what Moses is experiencing here in this passage. 
This fire is beautiful and it draws him in, but it's also a threat. He sees the fire. He hears God calling out to him from it. He draws near to it and immediately, verse 5 says, he's warned. God says, no, 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 do not come near. In fact, take off your shoes and hit the deck. Because the place where you are is holy ground. In fact, verse 6 tells us that what Moses is experiencing in this moment is so intense that he hides his face from God. He's even afraid to look up at the bush. He's even afraid to look up at the fire. It's a terror. It's a threat to him. The, the theological term for what Moses is experiencing here is the holiness of God. That God is, is so set apart, is so other, is so different, that there is such a great uniqueness to God that it demands respect and awe and even fear. If you were... Uh, if you were hiking in the woods and you came upon a large grizzly bear in the woods, you would immediately begin to experience an overwhelming sense of your own weakness and your own frailty and your own inadequacy in the presence of that grizzly bear because that bear is so large and so dangerous and such a threat to you, you would immediately be aware of your weakness in the presence of that bear in a way that you never would have otherwise if you had just been walking through the woods um, having never seen a bear. But because there's a, there's a sort of holiness to that bear. There's a sort of otherness to it. That it is so set apart that it demands respect and awe and fear from you in that moment. And that's exactly what Moses is experiencing here. As he encounters God as fire, he immediately senses his own impurity. He immediately senses his own frailty and weakness and unworthiness to be in the presence of of this God who is fire. And here's how we see this. Because after Moses realized who he realizes who he's dealing with, he cannot say anything nice about himself. Did you notice this? He is completely self-deprecating the rest of the passage. Verse 11, he says, God's saying, I, Moses, I am going to send you to lead my people out of Egypt. And what does Moses say? Who am I? Why me? Who am I that I should do this? And then again in verse 13, he's still filled with doubt. What if I go to them? I don't know what to say. Who should I tell them sent me? And then he picks it up again in chapter 4. And he's basically like, listen, what if they won't listen to me? What if they won't listen? And then again in verse 10 of chapter 4, what if I mess it up? I'm not eloquent. I can't say the right things in the right moment. What if I screw it up? And in verse 13, he's just like, let's just give up on the whole enterprise. Please just send someone else. What's happening there? He's coming into the presence of this holy God who is fire, and he's coming undone. He's being emptied of himself. He's, he's becoming incredibly aware, frighteningly aware of his own inadequacy. He's being brought to the end of himself. He literally can't think of anything good to say about himself. And here's what I want you to see. Uh, encountering the Christian God always involves a shocking awareness of your own inadequacy. Encountering the Christian God, always it always involves meeting the bear in the woods and realizing, oh no, I am no longer safe. It always involves an awareness of our own shortcomings. Like when you, when you draw near to the holy God who is fire, and you become aware of his sinless perfection, you become all that much more aware of your own sin and your own imperfection. 
When you draw near to the God who is love, who is selflessness, you become all that much more aware of your own selfishness. Or of your own bent to just make your life about you. And those two things stand in stark contrast to one another. And this is how you know you've met the God of the Bible, that your own inadequacies just come pouring out of you. You can't help but notice them. You're being emptied out. You're being brought to the end of yourself. Now, some of you are sitting here and thinking, okay, why would I want that? Why why would I want to encounter a God that's going to do that to me? That's going to bring me to the end of myself? That's going to empty me out? Why would I want to do that? And here's what I want to suggest to you. You want that because you're actually already empty. And then encountering God just makes you aware of what's already there. You're already empty. You just don't know it. Most of you. Until you draw into God's presence. Here's what I mean. Some of you actually, some of you actually do know it. And, and you live with a, with a fairly constant, steady stream of um, self-doubt. Knowing I'm not enough. I've never been enough. I never will be enough. In fact, I'm kind of suspicious of people who think I am enough, of people who actually genuinely seem to enjoy my company. I think that there's something wrong with them. Why can't they see about me what I see about myself? Some of you live with that constant stream of self-doubt. Some of you, on the other hand, uh, others of you live with, with something a little bit slightly different where you live where you're just sort of running. You're afraid of sensing that about yourself. And so what you do is you spend so much time and energy proving that you actually are enough, that you're not empty. And so you throw yourself into activism to try to prove that you you actually are enough to change the world. You throw yourself into romantic relationships to prove that you are enough, you are worthy of love and adoration. You throw yourself into your work to prove that you are enough, that you can get the job done that people can rely on you. You you throw yourself into religious life, into Christianity, to prove that you are enough. You are wise, you are mature, you are humble, you are growing, you are committed. Now listen, all those things are good, but they're never enough. There will always be more injustice to fight. There will always be flaws in yourself that you will either have to fix or hide from your romantic partner. There will always be more to do to, pro- to, to, to please your professor, your boss, or your future boss. There will always be more Bible to read, more praying to be done. It'll never be enough. And so Christianity is actually the good news that you can get off of the hamster wheel and admit, no, I'm actually not enough. And I'm either painfully aware of it all the time or I'm running from that fact all the time. And Christianity is good news because it invites you to come face to face with your own shortcomings and sins and basically say, listen, cheer up because you're worse than you thought. It invites you out of the charade and into reality. Because God is a fire. He's this beautiful, holy power that when we meet him, we are emptied out. We are confronted with our own impurity and our own weakness. But he doesn't do this to shame us. He does this to actually invite us into something better. He does this not only because he's the fire who empties us out, but he's also the fire who fills us up. If you read much 
self-help literature. I hope you don't, but if you do, um, when you read that kind of literature, they, uh, most of them are saying the same thing. When you encounter your own weakness and your own frailty, it basically tells you to speak back to that weakness and frailty and to prove it wrong. Is it, this is actually one of my favorite authors. She's brilliant. Her name is Brene Brown, and she writes a lot about shame. And um, what she, she has this idea. She, she talks about this thing called her shame gremlin. She says, we all have a shame gremlin. And what that is, it's a little thing that's like on your shoulder, and it's the voice that just tells you all day that you're not good enough. It's the voice that tells you all day that you're, um, that you're not smart enough, that you're not funny enough, that you're not pretty enough, that you can't get the job done. It's the voice that is co- constantly reminding you how bad you are. And what she says is you've got to learn how to talk back to your shame gremlin and tell it to shut up and tell it how it's wrong. Now she's half right. You've got to learn how to talk back to your shame gremlin. But the problem is what most people say is when you talk back to your shame gremlin, you've got to tell it how great you are. You've got to tell it how wonderful you are. And the problem is your gremlin will always have more bad things to say about you than good things you will have to say about yourself. It'll always have more ammunition than you will have. So your gremlin will say something like, you are so selfish. How could you be so selfish? And you'll say, listen, gremlin, I'm not that selfish. You saw how I treated my roommate today. I was so kind and generous and thoughtful and patient with my roommate this morning. And you'll be kind of right. But then your gremlin will speak back to you and say, yeah, but you know why you were so kind and generous and thoughtful? You just did that to keep the peace. Or you just did that because uh, your roommate doesn't wash the dishes enough and you've tried yelling and that didn't work. So now you're going to try being nice. And maybe you can be nice enough to guilt her into washing the dishes a little bit more than she actually does. And your gremlin's going to be right. That you were kind and you were sweet and you were thoughtful, but it was for you. It wasn't for them. So your gremlin is always going to have more bad things to say about you than you have to say good things about yourself. So what do you do? What do you do when you come to the end of yourself that you're emptied out? How do you get filled back up? Let's look at Moses. He's distraught. He's at the end of himself. He says, God, don't choose me. Please, please choose anyone but me. I can't do it. And what does God say? He says, you know what, Moses, it's okay. You're good enough. You can do it. That's not what he says, is it? You're smart. You're kind. You're funny. You're important. You just go back to those Israelites and tell them that I'm the one that sent you and everything is going to be okay. No, that's not what he does. What does he do? In verse 14, he says, he says, tell them this. Tell them, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Now, this is very complex and sort of peculiar in the Hebrew, but this is the divine name, Yahweh. You may have heard that word before. And there's been a lot of ink spilled in the history of Christianity about exactly what does that word mean. But, but basically what it is, is it's a play on words. It's a play on the Hebrew word to be. And so what God is telling Moses to do is he's telling him to go back to the people and say, tell them Yahweh sent you. Tell them the one who is sent you. The one who is eternal, the one who has no beginning or end, the one who is unchangeable, the one who is self-existent and self-sufficient, the one who is life itself. This is why, by the way, the fire that Moses encounters in the bush does not consume the bush. 
Because it does not need to feed off of anything. It does not need to draw life off of anything because this God is life itself. He needs it from no other source. And so what God is getting getting Moses to do is to stop looking at himself and to turn his eyes instead and look at the God who is and to find fullness and rest and life there. This is how one theologian puts it. Alec Matir, he, he says this. He says, The Lord had not solved Moses' problems by changing Moses either inwardly in feelings or temperament or outwardly in effectiveness. The whole intent of the Lord had been in an entirely different direction. When Moses was faced with his vocation, his very daunting vocation, to bring God's people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, his reaction was, I can't, so I won't. But God sought to bring him to the point where he would say instead, I can't, but he can, therefore I will. See, Moses comes to God and says, I can't do it. And God's like, of course you can't, but I can. This, my friends, is Christianity. This is the life of faith. To no longer look at myself, to no longer look at yourself, but to look at the God who is sufficient. See, faith, faith doesn't look back at uh, how bad I was. It doesn't look in the present at how bad I am. It doesn't look at how good I am becoming or how good I might become. It doesn't look at how empty I am or how empty I was. Or It doesn't look at anything. Faith simply looks at God and says, you are enough. And that's it. So here's the question. When is that hardest for you to believe? Like, when is that, is it hardest for you to really, like, deeply take hold of that truth that God actually is enough? For some of you, it's hardest to believe because of the hard things that are in your life. That there are things that you have done or things that have been done to you And you think, this is just too big. There's no way he can heal that. There's no way he can forgive that. There's no way he can fix that. He's not enough. For some of you, it's not the hard things. It's actually the good things in your life. There are things in your life that are so good that you think, I I like the idea of having God in my life, but I don't like the idea of having to give that thing up. And so God plus that thing sounds great, but God without that thing, he's not enough. I can't live without that. What I want you to see from this passage is that God is enough. That Jesus is enough. Centuries later, Jesus is in, is in an argument with some religious people. This is um, in John chapter 8. Jesus is in an argument with some religious people. And during the course of this conversation, Jesus claims to have seen Abraham. Now, Abraham was alive before Moses. So the people that Jesus is talking to are incredibly confused. They're like, okay, Jesus, I'm sorry, what? How have you seen Moses? And Jesus answers them. He says this, because before Abraham was... I am. And they pick up stones and they try to kill him. 
Because what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's saying, I am the eternal one. I am the one with no beginning and no end. I am the holy one in the flesh. And to their ears, it sounds like blasphemy. And so they try to kill him. And they can't kill him that day, but they keep trying. And eventually, that holy one is hung on a cross. He's lifted up on a cross to die. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, is reflecting on what Jesus is doing, this holy one, when he is on the cross. And what does he say? He says, Jesus is, is emptying himself. He is the one being ultimately emptied out. The, the life is actually being drained out of him. He is being extinguished as the holiness of God consumes him. See, Moses, when, when Moses encounters the fire, when he encounters the God who is fire, it's a threat to him because he realizes I, what fire does is it consumes impurity. And as he draws near, he begins to see his own impurity and think, I will be consumed. This will kill me. And that is why he hides his face. And that is what is happening to Jesus on the cross. That he is being treated as though my impurity and your impurity it belongs to him. And he is being swept up and consumed by the fire. So that we don't have to be. He is being emptied out so that we can be filled. His life is being drained so that it can be poured into us. Have you met this God? Who empties you out, brings you to the end of yourself, but then fills you back up with his own life? C.S. Lewis in um, the Chronicles of Narnia tell, tells a story in, in the silver chair that I think illustrates this, shows us what this is like. It's, uh, there's a character in the story named Jill. And Jill, at this particular moment, is dying of thirst. And she, some of you might remember this story. And she is dying of thirst, and she hears running water. And so she, she follows the sound, and she approaches the stream. And as she approaches, she stops in her tracks. She's paralyzed in fear because lying next to the stream is an enormous lion, the lion Aslan. And uh, they begin to have a conversation. And this is, what, this is what happens. The lion says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. And then she realizes it's the lion who's actually speaking to her. And it says, The voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for convenience. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. And then Jill asks, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? And the lion answered this only by a low, only by a look and a very low growl. And then Jill asks again, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? And the lion says, I make no such promise. And then she asks a very natural question. Do you eat girls? And Aslan answers, I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And Jill says, I dare not come and drink. And the lion says, then you will die of thirst. And she says, I suppose I will go look for another stream. And of course, he answers, there is no other stream. And this is what Lewis says she does. Then her mind made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. She went forward to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. 
was the worst thing she ever had to do. She was completely emptied out. But it was the coldest, most refreshing water that she had ever tasted. It fills you up. Have you met this God? Um, Who empties you of yourself and then fills you up with his own life. Let's pray.